Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, Kyle Malmstrom is back in the hot seat and he has got a guest, a return guest. Uh, This is actually a two-part podcast. If you have not heard the first one, go back and listen to it. I believe it sets the foundation for everything they're going to be talking about now. Matt Hogan is back as a guest. Amazing conversation last time. Kyle, I know we had to split this into two because there were so many questions. Yeah, we could probably split it into four, but we're going to do two right now and We'll probably get Matt back on a future date and answer some more questions. That would be great. (laughs) Matt, thank you so much for coming back. I love it. Thanks for having me. All right. I'm here to learn, gentlemen. Just I'm with the audience on this one. Take it away, Kyle. Thank you, Eric. So on the first podcast, we talked about cryptocurrency and Matt Hogan, Chief Investment for Bitwise Investments, joined us and answered a lot of questions there. And there's still a lot of questions probably to be answered around that general topic but I thought we'd move a little bit more into the investment side. So provided people get comfortable with the idea of cryptocurrency and what it is, then it moves to the second next question. The most often question I get asked is, how do you get invested in it? And Matt's going to help us with that today. So I would start with a, a, a sharp question, a, a pointed question is probably a better, better frame. Mm-hmm. Is crypto a real asset class, Matt? Yes. <laughs> yes, is, <laughs> yes is the answer. Here, here's, here's why. I'm going to answer it from two perspectives. If you remove the name crypto from the asset and just looked at it as a traditional sort of portfolio perspective, crypto has historically had three things that are extremely valuable. It's liquid. It's not correlated with other assets and it's historically had high returns. Now that's no guarantee it will have high returns in the future, but historically, you know, it's been the best performing asset class for the last one, three, five, and 10 years. The beauty of an asset that is not correlated with other traditional assets like stocks and bonds is that even if that asset is volatile, if you add it to the portfolio in a small amount, it's done wonderful things for your returns, just like other non-correlated assets. So I do think it fits the mold of a non-correlated asset that has a role to play in portfolios in the right size. The other way of answering it is, will it be around in the future? And we talked about that on last podcast. I think crypto and blockchain is a fundamental advance that allows money to exist on the internet. And I would just add that that money is the biggest addressable market the internet's ever gone after. So I think it will be a major uh, part of the global capital markets in the future. Kevin O'Leary refers to it as the 11th sector of the market. I don't know if that's true, but I do think it has a, a significant role to play in the future. And as an asset, it's got these extremely attractive characteristics. So there's the portfolio management side of it. People I talk to generally don't think of it as an allocation to an overall portfolio. Some people do, but a lot of people are just making bets. Um, Mm -hmm. Eric alluded in the last podcast, hey, I want to take a couple grand and play some bets and hope one goes to the moon, I think is what they call it. (laughs) I'm not sure that's the prudent way to go about it, but it's definitely what's happening today. Mm -hmm. So as an investor or somebody wants to speculate on crypto, Mm -hmm. how do they go about it? What are the major platforms? 
Well, and, first and, you have and to maybe yeah. in order to answer this one, let's go back in time, like 2013. How did you do it then? And what has transpired to today for retail clients to go out and buy these assets? Yeah, yeah, that's a great framing. I really love that. In 2013, it was really hard. Either you were a computer scientist who were com- was comfortable setting up your own hardware wallet, understanding cryptography, and you had a really deep level of, of computer science expertise, or you used a really shoddy platform. Actually, the largest way to invest in crypto in 2013 uh, was a platform called Mt. Gox. To give you an idea, Kyle, of how grassroots and small potatoes the world was in 2013, before Mt. Gox was a crypto exchange, it was a place where teenagers traded Magic the Gathering trading cards. So this was not institutional fund the longest shot. We've come a very long way since 2013. And now investors, it's not trivially easy to allocate to crypto, but investors have a lot of good choices. To talk about the barbell, if you're a large institution, there are a number of regulated custodians, including firms like, like Fidelity, that help you allocate to specific crypto assets like Bitcoin. For most consumers, you're really left with, if you want to allocate to crypto assets, you're left with, with three major choices. You can use a mobile app, like Coinbase is the most popular. Coinbase is a, a $60 billion publicly traded company. They have a mobile app that makes it very easy for you to allocate a few hundred or a few thousand dollars, to use Eric's example to one or more crypto assets. That's one option that you have. You have OTC traded trusts. GBTC is an example. Bitwise has an OTC traded trust called BITW that you can access through brokerage accounts. They trade a little bit like closed end funds. They can trade at premiums or discounts to their net asset value. That's another way that you can do it. Or for accredited investors, there are a number of private funds out there that let you allocate to to crypto as well. That's a format. The bigger question I think for many people is which crypto assets do you buy? Can you buy just Bitcoin? Is that enough? So you really have two choices. How do you buy it? Is it a mobile app on your phone? Is it an OTC traded trust? Is it a private fund? And then what do you buy? Do you buy one crypto asset? Do you try to pick the winners? Do you buy a basket of crypto assets? Those are the kind of questions people should be asking. And that's, and there's, I think you said 15,000 different crypto assets right now? Yeah, and growing. Yeah, there, there, there are a ton of crypto assets out there. So how does one even, I mean, obviously Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, there's some common names, Tether. You can go mm-hmm. to the top 10 and see which ones are the 10 biggest. But then after the 10, 15 biggest, you start to get down into names like Doji and Frosty Floki and... Like, how to, like, what are those? I just look at that and I'm like, I'm just throwing a dart. And there's yeah. got to be, and as, as, an in, as, an, as an investor for our clients' money, we don't throw darts. So we have yeah. to do our diligence and say, hey, this is why we believe this. This is, this is the methodology we went to go do the diligence on it. Here's why it would make sense, right, to date, just for everyone's record we have not recommended any specific bitcoin or any crypto asset at all Uh, it is in the investment committee meetings right now but how does one go about picking one other than just picking common names yeah how would it would it help if i explained why more than one crypto asset are needed yeah and how they differ Um, all right 
I think there's a broad conception. People don't understand why there's more than one crypto asset because they think of crypto again as a currency. We talked about on our last podcast how if you think of crypto as a way to buy coffee, you're thinking of it in the wrong framing. A lot of people think of crypto as like an internet currency and they wonder why we need more than one. The internet's sort of a global thing outside of China. Maybe we just need one cryptocurrency. Maybe I can just buy Bitcoin. That's actually the wrong framing. The right framing is to think of different cryptocurrencies the way you think of different software companies. So if we think about Microsoft and Slack and Salesforce and Oracle and Dropbox, these are all companies built on the same technology, software, but they're optimized to be good at different things, right? I use Microsoft for word processing. I use Slack to talk to my work colleagues. I use Salesforce for my, my customer relations. They're all built on the same technology, all optimized for different things. The same thing is true of different cryptocurrencies. So Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, Uniswap, the largest cryptocurrencies in the world are all built on blockchain, right? All built on blockchain technology, but they've built their blockchains in different ways. So the Bitcoin blockchain is built in a different way than the Ethereum blockchain, the largest two. And I'll use that as an example, and then we'll talk about how to invest. The Bitcoin blockchain was the first blockchain. So it was very basic. It's very primitive. As a piece of technology, you can only do a few things with the Bitcoin blockchain. You can program it to send someone Bitcoin, to receive Bitcoin, to hold Bitcoin, to destroy Bitcoin. But that's it. It's kind of like a calculator. Calculator is a piece of technology, but it can only do a few things. Ethereum was developed after Bitcoin. It looked at Bitcoin and said, it's cool that your technology lets me move a billion dollars anywhere in the world almost instantaneously. What if we could program it like we can program the World Wide Web? What if we could program that blockchain to act like a lending agent and decide who to lend money to? What if we could program it to record who owns what piece of digital art? What if we could program it to provide insurance in the case of certain triggering events? The Ethereum blockchain is what's called Turing complete, which means you can program it to do anything. And you might be thinking, Kyle, well, that makes Ethereum better than Bitcoin. But in the world of cybersecurity design, that's not true. When you can do everything, your, your software is less secure than when you can do a few things. So to make that real, when Bitcoin launched, it was a few hundred lines of code. When Ethereum launched, it was millions of lines of code. It's more likely a bug in the Ethereum code base than the Bitcoin code base. You may have heard people talking about Bitcoin as digital gold. The reason is that its software is optimized to be really good at storing wealth. Because it's so simple, because it's so limited, it's the most secure database in the world. And so Bitcoin is optimized to be good at being digital gold in the same way that Microsoft is optimized to be good at being a word processor. Ethereum can be used to do more things. All this sort of decentralized finance, which you might have heard of, this idea of using software to disrupt the banks, most of that is being built on Ethereum, not Bitcoin. It's never going to be good as good as digital gold as Bitcoin, but it's going to be used in different ways. And as you go down the stack to asset number three, asset number four, asset number five, asset number 15,000, all of these different blockchains are all optimized in different ways. The same way as if you went down software companies from number one to number 15,000, it'd all be good at different things. From an investor's perspective, that leaves you with two options. 
you can either pick one asset that you think is the best, like try to find Microsoft circa 1993. That's one option that some people choose. I guess you could pick an active manager to make those selections for you. Bitwise's approach and my personal approach is just to own the basket. You know, I, I sort of came of age of, as an investor during the internet bubble and the right bet during the internet bubble wasn't trying to pick one internet stock. It was to make the bet that the internet was going to be a big deal in 20 years and just own the class. It was very easy to pick the, you know, ask Jeeves and miss out on Google or pick Napster and miss out on, on Spotify or Friendster and miss out on Facebook. So many people just say, let's pick the best ones. Let's screen out the ones that are junky, that have risks, that may be disrupted, that have technology flaws, that have regulatory flaws, and then let's own the rest of the market. So that, that's how I think about it. So Bitwise, explain what Bitwise does and what you guys offer, because that yeah. speaks directly to what you just subscribe to as an investor. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So our flagship product is the world's first and largest crypto index fund. We hold the 10 largest assets weighted by market capitalization while screening out assets that have custodial risk, technology risk, regulatory risk, liquidity risk. So you can think of it a lot like the S&P 500 just applied to the crypto market. And then we rebalance that portfolio every month so that if a new asset emerges, that becomes really exciting, that builds a community, that gets application activity, we add that to the index and kick out something that used to be in there. So it's a way of making a bet that crypto is going to be more important in the future than it is today without saying that you have a perfect forecast and you can find the Google amidst the Yahoo's. It's a way of, of making a single bet. We do that, you know, that's our flagship product. We have other products as well. We have sector products. We have a crypto equity ETF. We, we, we're generally trying to provide easy exposure to the crypto market while taking care of the sort of dirty work of, of custody, trading, regulatory status, tax reporting, et cetera, making it easy to get exposure. But the core philosophy behind most of our products is this idea of just owning the market. This is a big idea. It's tracking a lot of venture capital investment, a lot of institutional flows. It's very exciting long term but that you can run afoul trying to pick and choose winners, or at least it's very hard to do that. How often do you guys rebalance or, um, you know, the S&P 500 selects and moves companies in and out of the index once a year? Are, yeah. are you guys doing it once a year? <laughs> no. The old saying is that like a, a day in crypto is like a month in the traditional capital markets. Uh, crypto lives in dog years. The, the industry moves so fast that a yearly rebalance would be too slow. We rebalance on a monthly basis. And uh, for what it's worth, we come from a deep indexing background. I actually edited the Journal of Indexes, which is the world's most boring publication for 10 years. We have a former member of the S&P 500 committee on our index advisory board. So we care a lot about these indexing details behind the scenes. But to answer your question, we rebalance every month because this market changes very quickly. It's still a very tax efficient strategy because the turnover amongst the largest constituents is relatively low. But every once in a while, a new crypto asset emerges that gains traction very fast. And we wanna make sure our investors are exposed to that early in its development journey, rather than waiting a year uh, when it might be up. There's an asset in our index that's up 10,000% over the last year. You wouldn't wanna wait a year before you allocate to that. Sure, so in the investment side, 
and I, and I acknowledge what you say there. I think that's great. The, and it does move fast. And there's a lot of little ones that, you know, <laughs> 14,900 little ones that could pop up at any point in time. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I think a lot of our clients and what I hear is everyone's challenged on just getting their, their toe in the water with regards to the crypto markets in general. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, at least what, I, what I'm, rela- well, I'm relaying back what I hear is all the risks. And so there's the fundamental versus, you know, let's just talk about the volatility of the markets. I mean, those markets have had 90% plummets how many times? And <laughs> three or four yep. at least. Yep. Yeah. Seven 70% drawdowns. Yeah. If, if this were on video, you'd see my gray hair. Yeah. Right. So what, what are the risks here? I mean, China decided they didn't want to participate in crypto. What happens if the U.S. government decides they don't like it? Like, let's just talk through the risks so everybody understands it because this is kind of a new frontier. While you, your view on it over the long term and technologically speaking is one point of view, just walk us through the risks. Yeah. The biggest risk is actually behavioral risk. So the biggest risk lies with either chasing high flying returns or bailing when there is a negative event. As we just mentioned, cryptos had seven, 70% drawdowns, right? That's a uh, depression era equity drawdown and route to being up more than 10 million percent. So it's been a phenomenal long-term investment, but there are very few investors who have held through that period. So the biggest risk, honestly, is behavioral risk. And the way you mitigate that is portfolio sizing. No one should be putting 50% of their portfolio into crypto because no one has an iron stomach to live through that sort of volatility. And there's too much risk to that. Most of the investors who work with Bitwise have between a one and 5% allocation to crypto. So if it does well, that's great. If it crashes, they continue to live their life. So I really want to emphasize that behavioral risk and portfolio sizing is where to start. On the sort of absolutely, yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's the big one, and it's the one that doesn't get talked about. My personal perspective is that there's a manifest destiny to blockchain technology, in that efficiency always wins out. So whatever. whatever the future holds, I don't think it's going to be the case that it's going to take multiple days for stocks to settle or money to move to abroad for my, you know, eight-year-old son when he's a mature adult. So I think, I don't think there's real risk to blockchain and the idea of blockchain disrupting traditional financial services. I think that's going to happen, but there's certainly risk to crypto as it exists today. There's regulatory risk. The regulatory structures around crypto are unformed. And if regulators get it wrong, they could squelch the market in the same way that there was regulatory risk in the early days of the internet. And regulators made a number of really key decisions that allowed that industry to thrive in the US. We could make the opposite decisions and we could crush crypto or at least slow its growth significantly. There's always technology risk, right? I mentioned it's the most secure database in the world, but technology evolves. And it's more than just Bitcoin. Other crypto assets could have technological flaws that could be exposed. And there's always competition risk, right? Particularly for the current stack of crypto assets. This is still so early in the journey of crypto that you could see one asset fall and be replaced by other assets. They're assets that are running into technological limits that could be disrupted. I think those are the big risks. 
I don't worry about the U.S. government banning crypto. I just don't see that in the cards. That's so fundamentally against the sort of core foundation of our country. I do think there's there's regulatory risk, but on the flip side, there's regulatory upside. If regulators put the right rules in place around crypto, it unlocks a huge amount of institutional interest, a huge amount of institutional investment, and a huge amount of economic growth. So there are big risks to be worried about. And, to your point, and though, they've been doing that, well. right? I mean, they've got it now where the tax reporting is uh, is much better than, uh, you know, five years ago, there wasn't any tax reporting on, on it at all. So that's, it's that's, making the improvements. That's exactly right. And it, it's really taken a step forward in the last year, and it's actually become a positive political force. I mean, there was a debate on the Senate floor about the best consensus mechanism, which is sort of the engine that allows blockchains to function. That's not something we could have conceived of a few years ago. And again, as I mentioned, there are now 70 million, 80 million Americans who own crypto. It's, it's almost a political movement. So I do think we're seeing regulatory progress. I think that's going in the right direction. But it is always the case when you're dealing with regulators, they're humans, they could make mistakes. And that's a risk that I think about and we think about in our investment process a fair amount. That's great. I have so many more questions, but unfortunately, we're going to run out of time here. Eric, uh, what questions, or did that answer any of your questions there? More of them, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I've got a list. So I'm, I'm oh. hoping that Matt will come back at some point. But I, I do have one question, and we, we still have a little bit of time. Crypto versus NFTs. I don't think it's actually a versus issue. Can you explain NFTs? Because I this, is, this one's been bugging me for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you've seen people pay $3 million for a, a JPEG of a digital rock and you didn't understand what was going on? Well, and here's the thing is I've got a warehouse full of pet rocks, but I just don't know how to distribute. So my <laughs> you just wanted to take a picture of them, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> take a picture of each one. Got it. I know what my weekend looks or like. Or all of them. Yeah. You don't yeah. know which one it's going to be the picture, but. The picture, yeah. I love this. Let me build up from the bottom, you know, in, in sort of 60 seconds, because I actually think NFTs are one of the most important applications of crypto. And because they're currently being applied to some sort of like goofy fringe parts of the market, people are overlooking what's a really critical technological advance. Hmm. If you go back to the last podcast, we talked about how the core idea of a blockchain is a database that everyone agrees is true and everyone can see, but no single party controls. One thing that that does, which is really cool, is it creates fundamental digital property rights for the first time ever. And here's what I mean. Like I have a bank account. It's 10 numbers. It's at Wells Fargo. The only reason that that bank account belongs, belongs to me is that Wells Fargo maintains a database that says Matt owns these 10 numbers, right? Otherwise, you could copy the numbers off my check and you would have my bank account. Mm -hmm. One problem with digital goods is you can press Control C, Control V, create an infinite number of copies. So his, until the advent of a blockchain, in order to own a digital good, you had to have a third party that maintained a database that says you own this. Once you have a database that everyone agrees is true, but no one single party controls, you can own a digital good in the same way that you can own a Honus Wagner baseball card that you hold in your hand or a Picasso that's hanging on your wall or your iPhone, right? You can, you can own it in a very direct sense without any third party maintaining a database that says you own it. The idea of an NFT is the idea of an individual expression of that digital ownership. So it's, it's, it's a way of owning, it's a way of having digital property rights. 
Now, what we've seen is this explosion in digital art, right? So Sotheby's auctioned $100 million of NFTs. Someone bought a piece of digital art for $69 million, and we all laughed at it because maybe the art is a little juvenile. But what you, should, what you should really see when you see that, what you should ask is, why were the first digital art auctions last year at Sotheby's? Digital art has been an idea for 40 years. NYU has been teaching it for 40 years. People have been making digital artworks. Why did none of them penetrate mainstream art? And the reason was, until you had blockchain, until you had NFTs, you couldn't own it in the same way you own a physical piece of art. So an NFT is a manifestation of digital property rights. And the reason I said it's a huge breakthrough is while art is a niche market, and there are a lot of people who are, you know, don't like the idea of digital art, we can get into that debate. Digital property rights is not a niche market. What about music rights? You're starting to see musicians auction the uh, royalty rights for new songs through NFTs so that they can be owned by a community and that community can benefit if those songs are hits instead of that, that royalty right being owned by one person at Sony. And if you dwell for a moment on like, what can you do with digital property rights? The landscape is absolutely massive. So digital rocks selling for millions of dollars, of course is goofy, but digital property rights through NFTs is a really big idea. And so that's my, that's my NFT pitch for you. So is an, is an NFT when it's a digital rock, right? A picture of a digital rock. Is that basically like the ID for the digital property that you yeah. own? That's right. That's right. It's like the provenance certificate. It's it's a proof of ownership technique. Yeah. It's, Got it. it's a way of showing that you own it. The best part <laughs> for that pet rock, though, is I can control C, control V, that thing on my backdrop. And it doesn't cost me anything. <laughs> Probably not go. supposed to, but uh, don't put it out there on the Internet for people to take a screenshot of, I guess. <laughs> I, don't, I don't quite get the digital art piece of it, but I do understand the property rights piece of it and i do agree with you matt that that is a very uh, it's going to be a big big and it's going to change property rights in, in so many ways and it's going to it's huge right it, it's so, absolutely i don't know huge. about the art piece of it um, <laughs> hey i i didn't understand the banana duct tape to a wall it sold for fifty thousand dollars either so art's always confusing i have bananas <laughs> oh wait never mind <laughs> 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 Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us today, Matt. And I know I have more questions and I know the audience has more questions, but we're out of time today. So again, why don't you give out your contact information in case our listening audience wants to reach out to you? Love it. So you can find me at bitwiseinvestments.com. You can sign up for my monthly notes from the CIO, everything that's going on in crypto, or I'm on Twitter, Matt underscore Hogan, which is H-O-U-G-A-N. So find me there as well. Thanks for joining us, Matt. This was awesome. <laughs> Thanks. It was, it was a real pleasure. I'd love to be back on in the future. Yeah, this was fantastic. I learned a ton. I know the audience learned a ton, and, and it also showed me I have a ton more to learn. So, again, Matt, thank you so much for being here. Kyle, of course, thank you for bringing him on the show and having these types of connections. You always bring great education to myself and the audience, so thank you for that. And our last thank you goes to you, listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day.
and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.